My name's Cricket and I'm an alcoholic. Hi, y'all. My sobriety date is October the 19th of 1969. And I'm grateful to be alive and sober. And a lot of people are grateful I'm sober because I'm a maniac drunk. I'm a not real normal sober, but drunk, I'm a maniac. And it was, it was funny because, you know, this has been a delightful experience. Uh, got my plane tickets a week ago. <laughs> uh, it's really been, a, and like he said, flying into the airport, he's checking out the bar, I'm checking out all the babies. I like babies, I like little people. And so I saw him, I thought, gee, that man's sure checking out that bar. And he just ignored me. <laughs> then I got here and I got to meet Butchie. Oh, I'm sorry, Butch. <laughs> it's in those other places they call him Butchie. <laughs> Somebody told me to stop on my way here and buy him a box of Wheaties, and I don't know what they had in mind. <laughs> But I ran out of money, so I apologize. I'll send your Wheaties in the mail. <laughs> and <laughs> Carl has been a delightful host. I've really enjoyed myself beginning last night in the hotel with Roger. And let your imagination take you from there. <laughs> but you know, when you get 57, <laughs> I'm real grateful. <laughs> Thank you, Roger, for a wonderful evening. <laughs> then I got to be here this morning and, and hear, you know, listen to a man come all the way down here from Florida not to speak, but to get up and speak. And two of my favorite, Joe and Doris. And then to hear a little Alateen, 11 years old, stand up here and tell me what my alcoholism did. When you love me, you hurt me, is what the little girl said. How did she know her daddy loved her because he hurt her so much with his alcoholism? You know, if I ever needed anybody to take my inventory, that little gal took it. Didn't mean to. Didn't mean to at all. But uh, the awareness of what happens to other people as a result of me becoming wrapped up in the bondage of self and doing Cricket's will instead of God's will. If I needed a reminder, I thank that precious, adorable Alateen for giving it to me today. I needed to know what I do, the pain that I cause. They tell us to share in a general way what it used to be like, what happened, and what it's like today. Carl and I were sharing a little bit about finances, you know, and uh, my financial life, my emotional life, my spiritual life, and my physical life for the very first time in my memory are on an even keel. Financially, I've always been way behind everything, and I've been way behind spiritually and physically, emotionally and mentally most of my life. Today, everything's kind of on an even keel. My father, my biological father, was a full-blooded Frenchman. He sired 17 children. So I can tell you that the man was very potent. None of us knew him. My mother is full-blooded black Irish and extremely superstitious. She believes that one child in every family is born evil. They're born possessed and you determine it by their weight at birth. And I was the run of the litter and I weighed two and a half pounds. So I was born evil and I was born possessed and I absolutely became those things. I believe that words can be the most powerful, powerful healing things. And I also believe that words can be the most damaging, treacherous things. I believe that when I open my mouth today, it's to bear glad news. People get offended. I don't understand it. It puzzles me. I do not understand it, that I say yes, ma'am, to women, and yes, sir, to men. And I say that if the women are two years old or 92, 
And I say that if the men are two years old or 92. And to me, that's just a, I'm honoring you. I am respecting you. And I was told by some people today that people find that insulting. May I apologize to you today if my manners offended you? <laughs> I didn't mean to, but I'll probably still say yes, ma'am, and yes, sir. You know, that's what my sponsor taught me to do. It's a lot better than what I used to call people. And there's a different feeling behind it. I feel different about you when I honor you with my mouth than I do when I dishonor you with my mouth. When I say to a woman, you are a pretty lady, I feel a lot different than when I say, gee, you're an attractive slut. <laughs> you know? There, there's a different feeling in my heart. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> Kind of. <laughs> but as I grew and, and I remembered all those words that were the spoken word as a child, I truly took on the identity that I was given because of the spoken word. We made our living following crops all over the United States, and people will ask me where I'm from, and I always pause because everywhere. We followed crops. My mother and biological father divorced when I was just a baby. And she married a gentleman with a third grade education. And we followed crops all over the United States of America. I absolutely loved it. We've picked cotton. We've picked grapes. We've picked apples. We've dug potatoes. I have a relationship with dirt that most people are never blessed to have. I, I'm serious. I love dirt. I love the feel of dirt on my hands. I love dirt because it's cool. I love it because it's warm. I love dirt because it's clean. And the source of that, the very thing that is dirt is what gives me a lot of other things I need, even today, even in recovery. The only thing I did not like about following crops, they assigned all of us lived in kind of what you would call a village and we had our own little houses. They were one room, and there was no electricity. There was no indoor plumbing, and I liked it. I liked that. I liked everything about the lifestyle of being a crop follower. The only thing I did not like was that every time the picking season changed, we had to move, and every time we had to move, we had to start a new school, and every time we started a new school, I didn't fit in. See, and I always believed it was because of the outside of cricket. We didn't have the things that were necessary for our skin to be clean, so I had real ugly skin. And everywhere I sat, I sat with my hands over my cheeks. And I couldn't laugh or smile because of the condition my teeth were in. So if I accidentally felt a laugh coming, I had to cover my mouth with and every time I started a new school, I believed that you would not allow your children to associate with me because of the way I looked. I understand as an adult that people were frightened of crop followers. They thought we were gypsies. They thought we'd steal their kids. We did steal your money. <laughs> we didn't want your kids. And so we always left the kids. We went to church on a regular basis. We went twice a year, every year. And the reason we did is because at Thanksgiving and Christmas, ministers would stand behind their pulpits and they would tell their congregation they needed to feed those that were hungry. They needed to share with those that were less fortunate than themselves. And so in order to qualify to be there to, in the very beginning, we had to be less than. We had to suffer from poverty, if you will, and we did. And it was kind of neat because at those times of the year, this, they would gather up a big wicker basket and they would put goodies in it. And back in the early 40s, they made a special Christmas candy. It was like ribbons. And they had all kinds of fruit-filled hard candies. 
and there'd be Crayolas and coloring books, maybe. And there might be jackets for us children. In order for that, us to get that as a family, we had to sit all the way through the sermon. The same way when you sign those court papers, they got to go all the way through the AA meeting. We had to sit all the way through that sermon. And this is what I heard the preacher say. He said, anything I prayed for in the name of Jesus, I would receive. And I'm a little girl. And I'm an ugly little girl. And I thought, okay. And I remember going home and going to the mirror, and I'd never had a toy in my life, had never had a bicycle, but I knew what I was going to pray for. And I remember standing in front of that mirror and finding a place on my face that didn't have a zit and putting my finger on it and saying, in the name of Jesus, when I wake up in the morning, make the rest of my face as clear as this spot is right here. And I went to bed, and I woke up in the morning, and I was excited. And I went to the mirror, and I looked, and there was a zit right where I prayed. You know what that told me? Jesus didn't like me either. You won't allow your children to play with me. Jesus doesn't like me either. And I found a place in my house that I called my safe place. We used to do a lot in our family home around a wood stove. That's where we heated the house. That's where the meals were prepared. That's where the bath water was heated. A lot of the old homes centered around a wood stove or a coal stove. And I remember thinking, if I crawl behind there, I can disappear. And I remember crawling behind that wood stove, and I would close my eyes and I would pretend. And I would pretend and my hair was all of a sudden a different color. My eyes were a different color. My skin was clear. My teeth were straight. And I would pretend and pretend the outside of Cricket away. At this time in my life, some of my older brothers were career men. They had become professional men. They were armed robbers. Uh, the hours were excellent. They chose to hide their guns and their money in a little hole in the wall behind my wood stove. They did not want me to tell on them and so they brought me a present, and I never will forget it. It came in a little brown paper sack. It was in a little bottle, and I understand today it was probably a pint. And my brother gave it to me. And I remember very vividly opening that bottle, and it was whiskey, probably cheap whiskey. And I remember how when I first took a drink, it burned and that whiskey burned all the way down. That whiskey burned down to my fingertips, and it burned all the way back up again, and it burned all the way back down again. And I drank it until that bottle was empty. During that period of time, I went back before that God, and I said a prayer. And I remember it very clearly. It's one of the few memories I have that's very, very clear. And it went, Dear God, Sir, my name's Cricket, and I don't believe in you. I don't believe in family, and I don't believe in cleanliness or goodness. But just in case you are, this is my very last prayer to help me to never. And I don't want any favors, big boy. I don't even want to feel good. Shortly thereafter, I left home and turned 12 years of age on the streets of Denver, Colorado, doing whatever I had to do to get a drink of alcohol. I know what it is to watch where the pigeons rest because that's a safe place to sleep. I know how to be warm outside. I know how to find the warmest place in the cool weather. I know how to find the coolest place in the hot weather. I know how to blend in out there because I had to do that. I stayed on the streets of Denver approximately a year, and the state of Colorado interfered. They call it intervention today. I think that's a polite word for butting your nose in. They interfered. They took me off at the streets of Denver. They said I was incorrigible. 
They did not recognize teenage alcoholism back then. They sent me to the state reform school in Morrison, Colorado to punish me, and it was absolutely wonderful. I got a toothbrush for the first time in my life. There was one person to a bed for the first time in my life, two sheets on the bed, an indoor toilet, a great big old huge white bathtub where you just turned these things and water ran in and stayed there until you pulled a little plug. I loved being punished. Uh, punishment just really was great. And I stayed there long enough to become corrigible, I guess. And they released me, and I went right back to the streets of Denver doing whatever I had to do to get that next drink of alcohol. I stayed on the streets of Denver, Colorado for the next three years. The state of Colorado interfered one more time. And once again, they did not take recognize teenage alcoholism. And this was back in the middle 50s. They took me from the streets of Denver to the Colorado State Insane Asylum in Pueblo, Colorado. I will tell you that I do not call it a hospital. I do not call it a treatment center. I called it then and I call it today the Colorado State Insane Asylum. I walked into that place and there was a fear that permeated the air. There was a fear that snuck through my nostrils down into the very depths of my soul and took away anything that had been remaining there. They diagnosed me as a schizophrenic with paranoid reaction with psychotic tendencies and I thought, I'm 16 and all that. I didn't know what they were calling me. I didn't know what they were calling me when they said I was incorrigible. I was sober several years and my sponsor told me that schizophrenic meant I was two-faced, and I am. That paranoid meant that I thought some of y'all talk behind my back and some of y'all do. And that psychotic meant I'd rather kill you than me and I still would. <laughs> you know, I'm just healthy enough. I'm, mm -mm. You're never going to hear me say if somebody in this room has to get drunk tonight, I hope it's me. Uh-uh. I got one shot at recovery. One shot. And I am not willing to take a gamble to go back to be what I was when I got here. I'm not willing to gamble on that at all. In the Colorado State Insane Asylum, to make me quit being those things, I was given 50 milligrams of Thorazine four times a day, 25 milligrams of Librium four times a day, and 10 milligrams of Valium four times a day. Let me tell you the good news. The compulsion to drink was removed. <laughs> so was the compulsion to go to the bathroom where you're supposed to. They did something back then that I didn't understand and with 29 years of continuous sobriety I still don't understand it Monday Wednesday and Friday they took a 16 year old girl child they strapped her to a gurney and they held her from her neck to her ankles they put a big wad of gauze in her mouth they put gooey stuff on her temples and a little leather strap around her brow and the psychiatrist would reach his hand down and tilt her chin up while his other hand reached to an electrical lever and asked that 16-year-old girl child if she was frightened. Yes, sir, but you couldn't say anything. Your mouth was plugged. I was as terrified of my last shock treatment, and I had three a week for 18 months as I was of my very first one. When I left the Colorado State Insane Asylum, I weighed approximately 300 pounds. I had lost the memory of a lot of things that I used to know how to do, like tying shoes, some very, very simple functions. I have brain damage, and that's okay. I work around it. There's a lot of holes in my life. There's a lot of big blank spaces. From childhood, I think I deliberately learned a way to just erase stuff. If it hurt me, I'll erase it, it'll go away and it'll never ever come back. And because of the shock treatments and the drugs that the state insane asylum administered to me, I think that that just enhanced my ability to do that. When I left that state insane asylum, I had no goals, had no place I wanted to go, nobody I wanted to see. I had a knowledge that I would live until about the age of 35, and then I would die a drunken tramp on the street. And I knew that. I knew that. At that time in my life, if you had said to me, 
what's your name, little girl? I would have said nothing. Where are you going? Nowhere. What do you feel? Nothing. Who do you care about? Nobody. I shuffled. I couldn't speak. I drooled. It was almost as if I'd had a... I stayed, went right straight back to the streets and went into a beer joint. I was released a week short of my 18th birthday. And I'm very, very grateful because had I turned 18 in the state insane asylum, they were going to do a state-authorized sterilization. And I'm extremely blessed that I have a daughter. You know, I have a daughter that was inside of me. I have a daughter that God honored me and used me to produce another living, breathing human being. The state didn't trust me, but God in his mercy trusted me. He trusted me because he knew way back yonder, God knew, I believe, that someday you would teach me how to become a human being again. And so God didn't allow them to take away that channel. And I'm very, very grateful for that. I started traveling all over the United States doing whatever I had to do to get that next drink of alcohol. The weight left. I could start holding my head up. I quit shuffling. I could speak again. And I just kept going. I never had a desire to stay sober. Never had a desire to do anything. I had an unusual experience yesterday evening. There's a man and his wife that are a part of you, Gary and Julie B. They were there when I was a newcomer. And for some reason, they remember me. I don't remember them. I knew by being in their presence that they were honest, caring, good people. And when with this gentleman shared with me <laughs> that they had to have people on me around the clock because I was really, really a sick puppy. They'd never met anyone like me. I had no reason not to believe Gary. They had to leave today. So if any of you see them, would you please share with them that my heart thanks them for being there when I was a newcomer. I'm real grateful they were, because I was only there physically. Mentally, spiritually, and emotionally, I was a wall. I was gone. I don't remember it at all. From the day I left that state hospital until the day I came into Alcoholics Anonymous, my life ran just a straight pattern. I don't care. I don't feel. I, who cares if you eat? There was absolutely nothing. I was in a beer joint. Imagine that on a Saturday night or a Friday night in Denver, Colorado when I was introduced to Alcoholics Anonymous. And I hear people in AA talk a lot about DUIs, DWIs. I never had one. And I used to think, well, if I ever leave AA, I can say it's because I never had a DWI. But I had to remember, in St. Joe, Missouri, it's kind of a hilly little place. And I got drunk and I got in a shopping cart on top of a hill and I had somebody push me well I was never very big in, except for during the state hospital I wasn't a big person let me tell you about shopping carts going downhill they build up momentum and they just keep going and going and going and they won't stop and you can't steer them you can't break them and they gave me a ticket for driving a non-motorized unauthorized vehicle so I do qualify for a membership. <laughs> when I left the Colorado State Insane Asylum, my right to vote was taken away from me, my right to serve on a jury. I have special permission to have a driver's license, and that's okay. I am on a lifetime temporary release, and that's okay. See, we think as human beings that we can actually control and take something away from another person. And we can't. If God's in the background of that other person's life, it doesn't matter whether I serve on a jury. It doesn't matter whether I can vote. 
I have a driver's license. It's legal. You know, what matters is that I know how to care about people. And I know how to be a good citizen of the United States of America without voting and without serving on a jury. I get to pay income tax once a year. And you never, ever hear me complain about it. I get to pay income tax. I work a legal job. I, I, I toil with my hands, my head, and my heart on a daily basis. I earn the check that I get, and I do what a responsible person is supposed to do with that check. And I've done that consistently now to where financially things are pretty much even. And that's a neat, neat experience. When I also left that Colorado State Insane Asylum, I knew that that prayer had been answered. When I walked into the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous at the age of 28, I weighed approximately 78 pounds. My hair hung way down my back. I smelled as bad as I looked. And I walked in not caring. The only reason I went to AA is because this gentleman named Harry, I felt like he challenged me to. He told me on, on the, in that beer joint on my bar stool, that he and his wife had watched me for several months and they thought I had a problem drinking and I thought I did drinking real good. <laughs> and I said, sir, I don't have a problem drinking. He says, well, well, my wife and I feel like you do and we'd like you to go to a meeting of AA with us tomorrow night of Alcoholics Anonymous. And if we find out you don't have a problem drinking, we'll leave you alone. I said, okay. And I sat there, I left there, went home with my sister at her house and I remember thinking, Alcoholics Anonymous, what could that possibly be all about? Well, let's see, a diabetic is somebody that gets real sick, and anything that has an ick on it means that they're sick. So alcohol ick means that these people think I'm sick. Now, what's the word anonymous mean? Had no clue. I know as a crop follower, I never knew prejudice. I didn't know what prejudice was until I moved to Texas, sober. But I'd heard about the KKK. And I thought, I bet that's what the anonymous part is. I bet I'm going to walk into that meeting, those people are going to have sheets on, and it's going to say, AA. <laughs> and I really believed it. But the man I felt had dared me. And I'm one of them sick peoples I have to take dares. I have to take them. I let you live out your insanity by daring me to do things that you want to do, but you're too scared to do them yourself. And this man told me not to take a drink the next morning. I said, no problem, big boy. And so I went to my sister's home, and I crawled up in one of her beds, and I woke up the next morning, and I did what I'd done every morning for a long, long time. I sat up in the bed, and I reached for my bottle of whiskey, and I pulled it up to my lips, and I couldn't take that first drink that day. And I got so sick not drinking that it was unbelievable. And that fool called my sister's house about noon, and she put me on the phone. He said, this is Harry. Have you had a drink? I said, no, fool. I told you I wouldn't. I haven't had one. He said, do you need a ride to the meeting? I said, I don't need anything from you. I told you I'd be at your meeting, and I'll be at your meeting. And so when he hung up, later in the day, my sister and I called a yellow cab because I don't need anything from anybody. And I went to my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous at 1311 York Street in Denver, Colorado. And I have been told what it was like. <laughs> I walked into my first meeting of AA, and I did like most healthy newcomers. I sat on the back row. They used to pass their little wicker baskets and they used to say, they quit saying it, but they used to say when they'd start the basket around, if you need it, put it in. If you, if you need it, take it out. If you got it, put it in. <laughs> I took their money. <laughs> I started following instructions immediately. <laughs> they used to say, take what you can use now, what you can't use now, come back and get it later. And I broke into their office and stole their adding machine and typewriter. I was not, I was not nice. I was not clean. I was a nasty, disgusting piece of humanity. I came into AA with two prejudices. I did not like red-haired women. I don't know why. And I did not like gay people. And I don't know why. 
I do remember a red-headed lady come walking up to me, and she said, Hi, my name's Sharon. Are you an alky? Well, you know, that was kind of disgusting, so I hit her. And some of the men asked her, they said, Have you told Cricket we care? And she said, Not yet. <laughs> I don't know that Sharon ever told me she cared about me. You know, I sat there, and I became real good for your group consciences because you started calling them more often. You had special steering committee meetings. You started studying your traditions. You had your little hidden bets about whether or not I'd make it. Uh, you wanted to kick me out real bad. And I got some long-term sobriety there, probably three or four weeks. And I was approached by a group of the men because I was breaking into the Coke machine that was coming back for something I could use later. I was breaking into the Coke machine and they approached me and told me they weren't going to tolerate my behavior any longer. And let me tell you what I felt. I felt that profound sense of, Phew, I can go back to my beer joint, get on my bar stool, because those people in AA are absolutely stupid. They tell you over and over and over, it's the first drink that gets you drunk. And I'm going to prove them liars. I'm going to go to my beer joint as soon as they kick me out. I'm going to order two drinks. I'm going to have the bartender sent down first drink, second drink. I'm going to throw the first drink away. And I'm going to start with the second drink. And I'll show them, by God, that first drink didn't get me drunk because it never touched my lips. Now, that made sense to me back then. It truly made sense to me. I stayed sober in Denver in spite of myself for approximately six months and I was told I had to leave Denver and I was told where I was going to go which was Fort Worth Texas well drunk I never went to Texas so you can imagine the feeling of a almost yeah when they said I was moving to Fort Worth because I'm a believer words words have such an impact I had heard, heard that Texas men were goat ropers now who wants to date a goat roper and that instead of toilet paper, they used corn cobs. And that they didn't have flowers, they had tumbling weeds. And I believe all of that. But I tell these people I'll go to Texas on three conditions. I want a case of real soft toilet paper. I want a high school diploma, because I've got four years of education. And I want a car and a driver's license. So they bought me a case of toilet paper. They took me to this lady, and she read me questions about 30 minutes and said I passed my GED. They bought me a 58 Rambler station wagon. It was funny. That car had three pedals. I got two feet. <laughs> Cunning, baffling, powerful. You know, they wanted me to do things up here on the steering column that normal people would never even think about doing anywhere, let alone in public, you know grab it and go, excuse me, you want me to do what, free? And I, you know, I just, but I did that. I did what I was supposed to do because I'm waiting for you to kick me out of AA so I can go back to my beer joint and it'll be your fault. Well, in Denver, they couldn't kick me out, but they were sending me to Texas and Texas had to be real backwoodsy. If they still, if they use corn cobs, they, they had to not have much sense. So it shouldn't be hard to get kicked out of Texas AA. So my sister and myself and my high school diploma and my toilet paper left Denver, Colorado, and we drove straight through to Fort Worth, Texas. Took a few little detours, but we got here. And we looked for a place to stay. And I found it, the right place. You know how when people are looking for their homes, it's got to be the right place. Well, this was, it was way out on the east side of Fort Worth, Texas, right next door to the Lucky Lady Beer Joint. And I knew I was home, because it wouldn't take long for Texas to kick me out, and I needed to be near a beer joint. And I found a little one-room place for my sister and me, and I did the next thing I was supposed to do. I went downstairs to go to my first Texas AA meeting, and something had happened to that car. I'd cracked a block or done something, you know. Um, but it never went anywhere else. I went to a payphone and I called a group of Alcoholics Anonymous in Fort Worth. And it was on the far southwest side. And some man answered the phone. He was absolutely repulsive. He said, Southwest Group, may I help you? And I thought, who answers a phone at AA that way? That's disgusting. And I said, 
I need directions to your group. He said, do you need a ride? And I said, is that what I ask you for, fool? I ask you for directions to your group. Can you handle that big boy? And he said, well, uh, yes. And he gave me directions to his group, and I hitchhiked from the far east side of Fort Worth, Texas to the far southwest side of Fort Worth, Texas. And I walked into my first Texas AA meeting, and a red-headed lady came walking up to me, and she was nasty. I wasn't. She was. She came walking up to me. She was going to hug me. I mean, she had her arms open, and she said, Hello, darling. Oh, and I just got the creepy crawlies all over me, and I thought, I better put a stop to this before it gets started. So I knocked her on her rear end. I mean, it, it was not nice. And in Fort Worth, I knew. I knew my place at that group. They assured me of my place, and they're still not kicking me out. It's not long after I become a very good member of that group. They install a floor safe because I'm so good to that group. Then they learn how to fix it so that I can't do the envelopes. They were so silly. They put in a floor safe with a big slit across the top, and they just drop the envelopes in while I go to a hardware store, and I get a tool, and I fish them out after everyone's gone. And so they learned how to do that. Um, they were real good to me because they tolerated me. I did not take a drink of anything containing alcohol the since the day I walked into AA. I've had 12 husbands in Alcoholics Anonymous. Two of them were mine. <laughs> Both of them regretted it. <laughs> you know, men are so gullible. I mean, men are so gullible. My first husband in Alcoholics Anonymous, one of his prerequisites for marrying me, see, I wanted to be married. I'm not doing that street stuff anymore, and I'm not going to just be giving it away. So what's in between? Marriage? Well, he wanted a woman that could cook. I said, I can do that. I've done that all my life. I'd never cooked a meal. Never cooked a meal. And so he, I'm going to surprise him his first night after we're married. I'm going to fry him chicken. Well, nobody ever told me you have to thaw it out. And, of course, I don't ask anybody because I can't let you know I don't know or I need you. And so I fry this chicken, and it really looks pretty. It really looks pretty. And he comes home, and that chicken's sitting there. He says, gosh, honey, this looks really good. And my sister's sitting there, and she's thinking, oh, God. And he picked up a leg, and he bit into that chicken. Well, it was bloody and raw and cold. And he said, uh, this ain't fit for a dog. Oh, and that hurt my feelings. But see, I can't tell you you've hurt my feelings. I have to get even with you for hurting feelings. I said, that's not fit for a dog? He said, absolutely not. I said, okay. The next day when he came home from work, I'd had his mother take me to the grocery store, and I bought Chunky Alpo. Three cans of Chunky Alpo. And I put it in a little pan on the stove, and his mother knew about it. And it just simmered. And he walked in and says, what smells so good? I said, supper. <laughs> At supper, you're smelling. And I served him that chunky alpo. <laughs> he ate two servings. <laughs> His mommy and daddy sat there and laughed. And when I told him what I did, he said, but you told me you could cook. I said, I lied. <laughs> about that and a whole bunch of that other stuff, you know, and he found another woman in AA, and I understand that, because I was such a sick, emotional vampire that I needed constant proof that he cared about me. He hardly dared go to the bathroom. He hardly dared go to the bathroom, because I need, I'd be at the door, do you love me? And that was something sick and needy about me because I'd never worked the steps of the program. Our marriage ended in a, in a divorce. He and I communicate well today. I have a great deal of respect for that man. And he has a great deal of respect for me. My second marriage is just a joke. You know, you sneeze and that one was gone. Um, and those things were because of me, not because of the gentleman that I was married to. As I stayed sober, and I'd go to that group, and they'd have their little birthday night, I remember my first sober birthday. 
And I looked and all these cards were sitting out there and I said to my sister, which stack is for me? And she said, there's none over there with your name on them, sis. And I thought, screw these people. Screw them. That hurt my feelings. But see, I couldn't tell them that. So what I did is I went to the drugstore and stole about 25 cards. And I went back and my sister addressed them all to me. And it was cute watching people on birthday night walk in. Did you buy a card? I didn't buy a card. Who bought her a card? How did your stack get that big? <laughs> and I did the thing. I sat there and opened my birthday cards and went, aw, <laughs> and stuck them in the envelope. I don't buy my own birthday cards anymore or steal them. You know, I just don't have to do that today. And it's really not important to me whether I get one or not today because I'm okay just being who I am and what I am. I stayed sober at that group. Uh, wasn't necessarily the favorite. Never elected treasurer. Uh, not nominated for offices. Somebody got a resentment. They went in. They torched the group. They just burned it down. Everybody thought I did it. I didn't. I haven't burned an AA group yet. <laughs> you know, I just haven't done it. But I had to move. And when I left that group, I went to the group, the group that has nothing but lady alcoholics and professional career men. And I would never fit in. But I went to the group because I couldn't make the move when Southwest moved because of me, not because of that group. And I walked in with almost eight years of continuous sobriety to Harbor Club, which houses Harbor Group. And a redheaded lady came walking up to me. And she said to me, Cricket, my name's Betty G, and I'm very scared of you. And I felt a profound sense of relief because the lady was an older lady. I didn't really want to hit her. I would have, but I didn't want to. And I said, okay, lady. And she says, but I need to tell you that I'm going to be your sponsor. And I said, excuse me? <laughs> You're going to... I've never needed a sponsor. I've stayed sober several years, she said, and I'm not taking anything away from that. And I'll make you a deal. Let's go in the back office here at Harbor, and my ears picked up, you know, office. <laughs> there may be something there that can benefit me later on in life. But I said, okay, and she says, and if I think you understand what the program of recovery is outlined in the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous is all about, I will leave you alone. Not the fellowship, the program of recovery. We went in that back office, and Betty G. opened up the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous for me, and she handed it across the desk to me, and she said, Cricket, darling, read me the first portion of Chapter 5 here. And I started reading to her. Much. I read all the way through the ABCs. And Betty G. took the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous out of my hand, and she said, Cricket, you can't read. And it was like somebody kicked me in the guts. And I sucked wind for a minute, and I said, I just read you the first portion of chapter five. And she said, no, darling, I had it open on chapter three. See, my sister wrote anything I needed writing. My sister read anything I needed read. And there was a whole lifestyle about, around being illiterate. And all of a sudden, this lady knows. But I can't let her know that it matters. I have to be bad. And I say to her, what are you going to do with that information, woman? And she said, Cricket, I'm going to take you to TCU. Now, that's Texas Christian University. She's just told me I'm a blithering idiot. I don't have the morals of an alley cat, and she's taken me to Texas Christian University. And I said, okay, lady. And she did. She took me to TCU, introduced me to a lady named Ruth in her 80s. And Ruth told me, that she was going to teach me how to read. And I said, how can you do that? And she put me in a class with nine and ten-year-old children. And she introduced me one more time in my life. I'd known it before until the shock treatments and the medication and the years of drinking, drinking, drinking to the alphabet. Ruth told me the names of those letters. Those children and I learned how to sit there and know the sounds that those letters made. And let me tell you that it's a beautiful thing. When you have 26, 26 separate entities that can co-mingle and say God, 
you take three little things out of 26 and you can put three little letters together and they join together and they say God. You can put those letters together in numerous kinds of ways and different messages can be given. Different messages can be written. Different messages can be spoken and can be heard by the assembling together of 26 little things. That may not seem like a big deal to any of you here in this room, but that's a big deal to the heart of the cricket. That's a real big deal. As I started reading, those people, those men and women that would never accept me, set me in the coffee bar at their group. And all of a sudden, I don't dress right. And I'm saying, excuse me? She said, you still dress to do business the way you did on the street. You have to start wearing your dresses higher. You have to start pulling them down lower. So you see, I dress the way my sponsor taught me. And I'm grateful. I had learned how to use a knife and a fork. I knew how to use a spoon. I learned how to use a knife and a fork. Normally, I'm not going to be an embarrassment to anybody in a social situation. With many years of continuous sobriety, I became pregnant with my first and only child, and I didn't need anybody, didn't need anything. And I went to the hospital, and I had her, and I took her home. And I remember on the way home thinking, I don't know if I can drive any further because this hurts. But I couldn't tell my sponsor I needed it, needed her. Do you need a ride home? No, I've got everything covered. So I drive myself because I don't need anybody. And I get home from the hospital, and I'm there, and that baby's there. And I remember the, the feeling of, oh, God, that's real. And the baby started crying. And I remember so vividly she was just a few days old going in there, and I had put a dry diaper on her, and I had fed her and laid her down. She's crying. And I went in, and I told her to quit crying. You know, I just looked at her and told her very truthfully, quit crying. And she wouldn't. And so I thought maybe she didn't hear me. And I said, you need to quit that. And she didn't. And I remember that feeling, that ugly, nasty cricket with many years of sobriety was right there, and I knew I was going to hurt that little baby girl. And I went to the phone, and I called Betty G, and I said, Betty G, y'all need to come and get this baby. And she said, oh, Cricket, we don't do that. And I said, well, let me tell you what. I'm going to hurt her. And when I start, I won't be able to stop me. And she said, oh, Cricket, I did not know. Within 20 minutes, members of Al-Anon, Alateen, and Alcoholics Anonymous were at my door. And I will tell you how I learned to tame the savage beast that is still the very best friend I have that sits right here. This thing that wants to steal love, cleanliness, goodness, and God away from me that wants me to die a drunken slut on the street is right here. Let me tell you how I learned primarily at the very beginning, very primitively, how to control that monster. When those feelings were happening, I had to go outside of my home, away from the child. If you are getting that kind of feeling out of me, I have to remove myself from you. And I have to ask God to soothe that savage beast, because there is one. I can truthfully tell you, because of the members of Al-Anon, AA and Alateen, my daughter has never lain in the floor and seen a foot coming down upside her head. I have never called her a dirty name. I have never told her she was stupid. Her entire life I have been able to look in her eyes and say, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am. Her entire life I have punished her like any caring parent does, but perhaps differently. I never knew right from wrong, so I punished her for motives. Why did you steal? Because I just didn't want her to have it. Then your motives were wrong, so you have to be punished. I punished her never for an action, always for a motive behind the action. 
At this time in my life, my sponsor took me on a journey that is absolutely wonderful. I got to go, I got to go, buck naked before God, spiritually buck naked, and admit that I was powerless over alcohol, that my life was unmanageable. And let me tell you what, that is so amazing because immediately I got to come to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity. Oh, and I wanted it. I wanted to be clean. I wanted to be whole. I wanted to be able to lie my head on my bed and not have it go thump, 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 thump. I wanted to be able not to jerk if you walked up and touched me. I wanted to be able to look in your eyes. I wanted to be able not to have to go and wash if you held my hand during the Lord's Prayer. I wanted those things, but I didn't think I'd ever get them. I sat there at that group and I listened to that woman and she told me, she said, Cricket, you get to make a decision now. And I said, oh, Betty, I can't vote. I can't serve on a jury. I can't make decisions. And she said, that's the government. This is Alcoholics Anonymous. You get to make a decision to turn your will and your life over to the care of God as you understand. Do you understand how awesome that is? It's not just words on our wall. It's not just words in this book. I get to make a decision. And if I want to stand on a street corner with a tambourine and sing Onward Christian Soldiers, if that's my decision, then by gosh, that's my decision. But I got to decide to turn my will and my life over to the care of And I got to look at me and take an inventory. And I had the privilege of taking that inventory to my sponsor, to my God. And they were not the same thing. Because I took my inventory to God first and then to my sponsor. And I got to find out what it meant to be entirely ready to have him remove all those defects. See, some of those defects you couldn't see any longer. My sponsor had made me quit stealing. I was no longer allowed to use F-U-C-K. I couldn't have affairs with other married, with married men. I couldn't hit people I didn't like. I couldn't turn over the tables at discussion meetings if I didn't like what you were talking about. She made me quit a whole lot of things. But see, when I did those steps, I became willing. And there's a difference. I can cook this beautiful brown-skinned, brown-eyed lady the most wonderful strawberry shortcake in the world if she says, Cricket, I want it. And I fix it for her and I set it in front of her but I can't make her eat it. And so when I got to have that experience and I got to make those decisions and I got to become willing and I got to humbly ask God to remove those things and I knew what they were. And that was a not a degrading experience for me. And I had a list, my sponsor had a list of people to make amends to. And I thought I can never do it. And I have made some amends that were not accepted. I've had people tell me, take your stuff and go on down the road. Your years too late, heartaches too many. You can't undo what you've done. And they're right. I have a great deal of shame. And I know people tell you you shouldn't feel ashamed. You shouldn't feel guilty. A week prior to my walking into the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous, I sat in a beer joint that was a combination restaurant. And I saw a man shot in the face with a shotgun that was sitting right across the booth. Now let me tell you what I felt. I was upset because my french fries were ruined. So for me to feel shame and guilt is healthy. It is healthy for me to look back on what I was when I got here to what I am today. It, shame and guilt is good for me. And when I looked at that and I started doing those amends, exactly the way my sponsor told me to. Inside of me, I knew that something was still missing. And see, I went back before that God, and I said another prayer. And I remember it vividly also. Dear God, sir, my name is Cricket, and I kind of believe in you, and I want to believe in family, and I want to believe in cleanliness and goodness. So, sir, if you are, I'm going to ask you to help me to feel again. 
I go to those AA meetings, and those people hold my hand during the Lord's Prayer, and I have to go and wash them away. There was one of the most important men in my life was also a crop follower, and he had skin that was almost the color of and he had gray hair, and he let me push it down, and it'd pop up. Push it down, it'd pop up. And his name was Mike. In the early 40s, it was probably frowned on for a black man to care about a little white girl. And let me share with you what Ike shared with me. Someday, little pale one is what he called. You will run and not be weary with the wings of an eagle. When I came into the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous, I was a parrot. I had learned enough about the big book by listening to it repeatedly over and over and over that I could quote you the first portion of chapter 5 and you thought I knew how to read it. I was a parrot. When Betty took me on the journey through the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, I have mounted up with the wings of an eagle. And see, my sponsor died. I had a key to her home. I had a key to her car. I could sign on her checking account. She was a judge's daughter. She had a master's degree. She had something, mineral and oil rights, where Texaco just mailed her checks like crazy. And four times a year, we paid IRS $40,000, and it used to make me so mad that she had to do that because I felt like it wasn't fair, and I tried to make them stop, and she asked me, please not interfere, because I called them to tell, her, tell them how much money she gave to people. And it did something about gift tax or something. I don't know. I was trying to do the right thing. But I knew at that point to quit interfering because she informed me. And that lady began the process. In here was just like a lump of stone. And it was filled with thorns. And what the steps of recovery did and the 12 traditions of recovery was remove it one thorn at a time. And it was no longer prickly to the touch, just hard. She took out of me that heart of stone and put in me a heart of flesh. That group of Al-Anon and alcoholics and Alateens took me and took me. I was torn apart. They dumped me down in the middle of the floor like a jigsaw puzzle, and they start putting me together. And God, my God, says, I'll find her heart for you. I'll find the heart, that missing part. And when I said that prayer to him, he took that part and filled in the puzzle that those people had made. Shortly thereafter, when I went over to do her breakfast, my daughter and I, we walked into my sponsor's house. And my daughter called her granny. See, I have one brother that I still associate with, and I love him. He was a hero when I was little in the crops. He's still a hero. And I have a sister that I'm learning to love a lot, and I still have contact with a sister that went to Texas with me. But my daughter says, Granny, Betty, we're here. And I said, Betty, gee, I'm here. And I walked upstairs, and I found my sponsor in her bathroom floor dead. She had on the lavender nightgown that I'd put on her the night before. There were six live yellow tulips that I'd placed by her bed the night before. And I knelt down beside my sponsor, and I put my arms around her, and I said, Oh, Betty, gee. See, and my first thought was, what's it going to be like without Betty, gee? Who's going to tell me when I'm wrong? I want a sponsor that cares enough about me to tell me I'm wrong. Because if I'm doing wrong, that means I'm not doing right, and I need to know. And I, I went through those kind of feelings. And I thought about her, and I touched her, and I covered her up. And I called the group of AA down there, Harbor Group. And those people came over to Betty G's. And they came over to be with me, and I understand that today because Betty G was gone. And when they planned her services, her funeral services, everything that Ike told me came true. Because, see, those people, they were so silly. They took Betty G, and she's a long, tall lady. And so they put her in this big, pretty box, and it had all this fluffy stuff inside, and they pulled that lid down, you know, and they had flowers all over it. Betty wasn't in there. You know, I, I was sitting back there on the back row, and I'm thinking, what do they think they're doing? What my sponsor was was too much to put a lid on. <laughs> you know, and they take her and they put her in the ground. 
that's not going to stop my sponsor. You know, my sponsor's alive and well and breathing. Alive and well and breathing. You just can't see her. You know how I know she is? In the airport, I got to look into the eyes of a little bitty baby. And when I heard the cry of a little bitty baby, I knew that God is. I got to drive from the airport with a new friend, and I got to hear the sounds of Indiana, and I knew that God is. I got to walk into a hotel room and see a basket of fruit that nobody in this room can make. You can't produce that fruit. You can give it as a gift, which you did. And I knew that God is. See, there's, there's not a thing that goes on in my life that makes me doubt my God. And if I ever want to hear God's music, all I have to do is open my ears. Children at play, the cry of a newborn baby, an adult that gives that gasping <laughs> sob because their heart is hurting so much. Yeah, I can hear God. The laughter of other people. Yeah, I hear God. I truly hear God. And I can see God. You know how I can see God? I can look right out there. There's every sex that we know about right out there. There's probably every color in the rainbow right out there. There's young people, there's old people right out there. None of us could paint a picture out there with the warmth that begins here and goes all the way back and encompasses all because we don't know how to paint God's love. We can't paint it. And what Ike said was true. Betty mounted up with the wings of, of an eagle. She was not in that box. She's alive and well. My daughter is going to give birth. She got married a year ago. My daughter went all through school. I mean, 12 years and then two more. She doesn't do drugs. She doesn't drink. She married a nice man a year ago, May. They're having their first child this May. They're buying a new home, brand new. And they're in their early 20s. And I, I didn't get jealous, really. It's brick. It's got central air and heat, which mine does not. I live right in the middle of Mexican gang town in Fort Worth, Texas. The city values my house like at $15,000. Oh, that wouldn't touch with what goes on at my corner. My daughter's house is probably a lot more than that. The only thing I got jealous of is that she had a garage door where you push a button and it went up and down. You know, and I just got consumed with that stuff. And for Christmas, now my garage kind of tilts, but I've got a garage door that goes up and down, up and down. <laughs> and I'm so proud. I'm the only one in the neighborhood who has that as a result of a gift from one of my, one of my sponsorees. You know? But she's what God intended for her to be. She has made some real right decisions in her life. And I believe her kindergarten of spiritual life began inside the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous when she was a little bitty girl. I am so grateful that you wanted me to be a part of this weekend with you. Sometimes you don't know what you give to me. Roger said something to me last night. He said, I'm looking forward to seeing you tomorrow night. People aren't supposed to feel that way. About I've had people today, I've had a situation that, and see, usually I can't say anything. And I was able to go to some of the men and say, I need your help. I'm being, there's a threat here. And you know what? Maybe they lied, but I believe they would have dropped dead to protect from a threatening situation. Every day, I become a little more Every day, I become a little more free. My prayer has been answered. I feel again. I don't mind you touching me. I'm not a hugger. That's not a defect. I'm not a thief anymore. I think that's a care asset, probably. It's better for you. 
see, I get to read. If I pick up this book here tonight and you tell me a page number, I can read the words. And if you think because I've got the whole book memorized, give me another book. If it's written in English, I can read it. There's not an organization I am more grateful to than I am to the organization of Alcoholics Anonymous. There's not an organization that has my admiration any more than the organization of Al-Anon and Al-Ateen. Without them, we wouldn't be. For any harm that I have done to anybody anywhere, I am truly sorry. Thank you for adding one more day, one more hour to my life. Thank you for the new music that you've given my soul. Thank you for being a part of my healing and my recovery.